the state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at an historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laugh as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Quick disclaimer before we enter part two of our exploration of the bizarre final years of Mishima. This episode uh, contains, at times, uh, no, how would we say it? Pretty graphic depictions of uh, some, some adult mature things. Yeah, I would say that. And also discussions of suicide, of the ritualistic variety. And so if you were to ask me, uh, if you were to say, Ben, is this appropriate for all listeners? Then I would say uh, it's something to have a heads up about. But we hope you enjoyed part one of this series as much as we did. So we wanted to give you a quick disclaimer. Uh, This may not be one for everybody. But it is certainly a story worth being told, and we want to thank again our excellent research associate, Zach Williams, in his first ever on-air appearance, technically his second, I would say. Mm -hmm. That's right. Let's get right to it. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. And let's give it up for our own iconoclast super producer, Mr. Max Williams. Here's an iconoclast. They call me Ben. Noel, this is part two of a two-part series that we've both been incredibly excited about uh, i guess we should tell people before you listen to part two check out our episode that came out this previous tuesday uh there's going to be a lot of context you'll need and uh and i think it's a it's a deep diving wide-ranging conversation thanks in no small part to our returning special guest research associate dr zach one night over sleep town a doctor appeared but this was no normal doctor Who's there? It's Zach. Zach who? The doctor. 
here to fill your scripts. Just for knowledge. Pet is cat. Teach you history. Books and stuff. Um, let's go with other things. Yeah, that'll work. Zach. That's right. The nickname stuck. What can you do? I do yeah, not perform it, surgery. He did uh, it. I, I refuse my surgery. title. Yeah, I mean, not actual <laughs> brain surgery, but, you know, brain adjacent surgery. Uh, guess what conversation really is, isn't it? The diminishing um, returns. Well, you know, I, I find that the returns to be absolutely sufficient. Uh, <laughs> if, uh, if if part one of this series is any indication, uh, and just, just to give people a little bit of a backtrack, you know, even if it's been a couple of days since you've listened, we're talking about the bizarre life and times and final years of Yukio Mishima iconoclastic writer, poet, musician, bodybuilder, uh, samurai enthusiast, who also kind of, you know, came honestly by that in his upbringing, which was in more of the kind of, not feudal Japan, but sort of the tradition of that kind of world and that archetype, right? Yeah, uh, I mean, like like we said, he's, his fa- he's descended from vassals of like samurai families and things like that. Definitely has historical associations, cultural associations, and certainly was associated with those things uh, after his life by much of the Western publishing world. But a very modern figure for Japan, like very post-war, kind of like this new futuristic Japan. And he sort of was simultaneously embraced by Western audiences and sort of like, ooh, like the the, the brass in Japan didn't quite know what to make of him, you know? Um, And he really was this sort of like writer as celebrity kind of figure, which is not something we see nearly as much today. Um, Maybe the artist as celebrity, like uh, Damien Hirst, for example, or Andy Warhol, but you don't really think of like these big celebrity writers that have that same kind of, you know, cult of personality. But this guy was that thing. Well, J.K. Rowling, uh, Stephen King, arguably, but not, I, I see what you're saying, Noel, not perhaps to that degree. Uh, still, uh, in the Rowling case especially, lots of controversy, right? And, uh, well, and went a political direction that maybe she had no business or uh, expertise to go down. Pick it up by um, segue, man. Yeah. yeah, so this is this is the thing. where la- Where last we left Mishima, World famous, right? In a always the bridesmaid sort of situation with the Nobel Prize for Literature, intensely considered uh, throughout uh, the 60s, I believe. Uh, And he has no compunction about airing his opinions past the world of fiction, past the world of literature. Uh, He starts talking a lot about nationalism. And the man very much has a microphone He is very much in the zeitgeist, right? And so people are hearing his opinions, his perspective. And one thing that surprised me about this was at this time, while outsiders may associate him increasingly with what we would call right-wing political ideology, I was not aware that the people who are actually the movers and shakers of right-wing Japanese politics, we're talking very far right I did not know that they didn't all dig him. Uh, And it's the primary sticking point, I believe, is that he says Emperor Hirohito, who we mentioned in part one, should have admitted fault, at the very least, for the atrocities committed by uh, the Japanese imperial forces in World War II. Was that really such a sticking point for them, Zach? 
it wasn't just that. It, he was also sort of, um, he was also very critical of the emperor simultaneously sort of like in favor of the emperor's cultural purpose and station in society. Very critical of the fact that the emperor abdicated the throne at the end of the war and renounced his uh, status as a sort of like spiritual being. And then in addition to that, as you pointed out, the sort of denial of wartime atrocities, which are numerous uh, in Japan, um, as they they were everywhere else in the Axis powers. And, you know, to a certain degree as well, I don't want to say lesser, but, you know, we weren't necessarily doing the things that some of these regimens were doing, but we had, um, you know, we had camps for Japanese citizens in America, right. things of that nature. But in the case of Japan, these are things that the right wing still refuses to kind of countenance, like even sort of acknowledging sort of like experimentation. And then, of course, comfort women and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, most recently, former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was assassinated and one of his because of his involvement in the nationalist right wing and also because of his relatives' involvement in the Japanese military during the war and their direct kind of responsibility and implication in those things um, still maintained that Japan did nothing wrong, which was something that really did stick in Mishima's craw. He was a very nihilistic individual, but I think he also had a, a sense of conscience. And um, for his own sort of political aims and ideas, he didn't think that the sort of noble character, the essence of what he thought was the Japanese character could be retained unless those accounts were settled in some way, quite publicly even. Um, you do not get to have this sort of moral kind of high road if you've committed acts like this, seems to be the kind of way he he saw things. So, so, so the nationalism is what? Like a backlash against like overly um, kind of globalist thinking like after World War II and, and, and you know, the idea of kind of like, let's play nice with the rest of the world. Like wh where does this nationalist, I mean, it's interesting because it's tempered nationalism, right? Because it is saying admit fault, but then let's go back in our bubble. Is that, am I, am I getting that right? That is, that is basically it. And the thing that's worth noting is that um, Japan had experienced something akin to the Marshall Plan Mm -hmm. In Europe, right? Wherein, like, after the war, we're rebuilding Europe in our own image. We basically did the same thing, I would say, to an even more intense degree in Japan. There is no standing army, for instance. There's only the special defense forces, and that's by a chartered constitution of the occupation government. We held and still hold a great deal of property, uh, including military bases in Okinawa, for instance. That's That special defense force still holds to this day. And of course, like the globalism, the materialism, the kind of transacting this culture into capitalism, which of course resulted in rapid growth and cultural change over the course of the 20th century, resulting eventually in a crash that decimated Japan's economy throughout the 90s. All of these things Mishima saw as a kind of a tempering of like the Japanese essence, the Japanese character, a, a loss of who they were as people in the sort of traditional sense. And one of the things that's interesting about his views on these sorts of things is that he was always very, very clear that like these are not political sort of um, sentiments or feelings, which is a thing that is very common among the right wing to do politics and to say this isn't political. <laughs> right. We're returning to a natural order, which is that reactionary nostalgia that I've sort of maybe made reference to last episode, which seems to me to be the substance of where Mishima was coming from at this point of his life. And we can talk a bit more about reactionary nostalgia as a kind of right-wing concern and phenomenon, but I'm sure we have other more pressing matters to get to with regards to where our man is at in the late 60s on into 1970. There's something really, really fascinating here too. We established pretty well in part one that Mishima is looking for recognition and fame, 
maybe even a little notoriety beyond the confines of Japanese culture. But Japan has historically been a somewhat closed society to outsiders. Even today, the population is quite homogenous in comparison to many other countries its size. So it's an interesting wrinkle to me that while wanting to be a public figure on the global stage, Mishima also increasingly did not want the global stage visiting, and perhaps in his opinion, diluting the cultural framework and fabric of Japan. And this is when he starts getting really involved with military forces. You mentioned the self-defense force, which is still, as you said, a thing in Japan, although sometimes depending on China's activities in the region, you'll hear politicians, uh, domestic politicians, arguing for more militarization. Tell us a little bit about how Mishima came up with the idea of making his own army, or militia, we could say. Well, I think part of it comes from uh, an early effort in um, in his sort of like early years of kind of becoming a, a political figure, at the very least an object of political curiosity. He drafted a sort of proposal to have 10,000 civilians conscripted into the self-defense, special defense forces. And um, basically the idea was to sort of not only shore up defense, but also bring back that kind of militaristic, non-imperialistic, but sort of like in defense of the nation style of thinking. The defense force is not enough. We need to foster a feeling of um, nationalism and defending the character of this place uh, within our citizenry, a thing that has fallen by the wayside as we become more capitalist, more materialistic, more global in our perspectives and in our spending habits and things like that, allowing other people to come in with their corporations and their militaries and things of that nature. So uh, naturally, this was not necessarily that popular a sentiment, and this is a kind of uh, recurring motif in Mishima's political activity. The sort of referendum that he was trying to write up failed, and then in the absence of success in that regard, decided, I'll start my own militia instead for the defense of the nation and um, sort of like the resumption of what we, we are as people. It's that kind of first step towards getting back to that glorious past that he became so obsessed with. A hundred percent. I mean, this is this thing, this uh, idea of a, a code, right? The honorable behavior that clearly comes from this idea of samurai lineage that clearly is a part of his logic in saying one must admit the sins of the past. Uh, and this this concept of ethical traditions, as we see in the S.H.I.E.L.D. society, is um, he's, he's starting, I, I would say, even more than a militia, it's aiming for this movement, right? Because he also, you know, he does a little bit of a Tyler Perry thing and does all the stuff. He makes the uniforms. I believe he writes a song for the for the society, which I have not heard, uh, but I, I hope it slaps. Uh, and, and he... Uh, he is still writing the entire time that he's doing this, right? He's like an every night kind of night owl character. Is this the period of his life that produces the Sea of Fertility? This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. 
With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, temp to hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts about spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car, and I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know. I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac, yeah. Bonnevilles. right? Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was, a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, <laughs> I said El Camino and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. It, it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
It absolutely is. And it's sort of like the the indicator, I think most, it's one of those things that so very obviously aligns with his political ideas and what he thought, how he thought Japan was in crisis uh, at the time. It's a, it's a series of four novels. All of them are interlocking. It follows the same narrative protagonist as uh, he lives through um, from 1912 through 1975, and um, naturally, that's a very, very, very meticulously selected period because this is the the period of modernization, post Meiji restoration. This is the period of the war and imperial expansion and things of that nature. And ultimately, what he ends up finding is that uh, what, what the book ends up rehearsing is this constant kind of um, again backward looking kind of like reverent nostalgia for this past that is dying. And this figure from the narrator's life who dies as a very young man and then subsequently throughout the rest of the books is reincarnated in new forms as a kind of placeholder for this old, this old life, this old time that cannot by any means survive as Japan modernizes and continues to modernize. The, the figure that is reincarnated in these novels is always ostensibly doomed to die young, which is also very thematically tied to where this all goes at the end. Um, this obsession with aging, this obsession with losing things, uh, whether that's uh, the body or even consciousness even. For as much of a nihilist as Mishima was, he seemed to be absolutely concerned with sort of being around in some way of a sort of that kind of reproduction of life that goes on into perpetuity that preserves uh, the way things were. So people have something to sort of put a hand on and and, and know where we came from. It, it's one of those things that's utterly understandable, I think. Like we think of things in terms of legacy and stuff like that and and sort of making sure that we remember things. And one of the things I think that Mishima does get correct, and I'm coming at this from a left-wing perspective to be fully, to full disclosure, to be fully transparent, Mm -hmm. um, as the market and globalism has sort of like expanded over the course of the last 50 years, especially, time seems to have gone through changes that reflect that. uh, And um, people are increasingly remembering less and less and less. So for instance, Mm -hmm. you know, it's interesting when he says we need to acknowledge the atrocities we committed during World War II because it's absolutely important to our ethics and our character that we have a conscience and that we take account of these things. The same could be said of um, America's past and present. The same could be said of uh, mm-hmm. England, Germany especially, Italy, all of those things. Anybody who's had any nation that has an idea or concept of national character sure. Um, seems to be in like lockstep with this constant movement forward at the expense of, you know, accounting for where this all comes from. I'll tell you, Germany seems to do quite a good job at it. I mean, they even have like, I've mentioned this before because I'm a big fan of overly long, descriptive, single German words, but there's a a word uh, describing collective guilt over the atrocities of the Holocaust, Bewangenheitsbewaltigung. And I was in Berlin um, for for a a trip um, uh, last earlier this year, and a lot of the museums that are named after Nazi, you know, uh, officials or, or sympathizers at the very least, like the Boda Museum, they had a whole wing devoted to reconciling that legacy and sort of uh, course correcting, um, uh, you know, the legacy of, of what the museum stood for now. And all of that pertains kind of to that collective national kind of identity. So that really is, it's difficult to do. It requires mm-hmm. buy-in on a very large scale to do it correctly. Um, and I think, you know, I think I, it's something that, that very much fascinates me as well. Yeah, it's still a struggle. 
No, you look at the sort of debates surrounding CRT and things of that nature in the past two mm-hmm. years uh, that have been very public and vocal. And there really does seem to be, and again, it's that reactionary nostalgia, right? That feeling that the natural order of things was this. And there was nothing wrong about it, actually. And what you do to <laughs> sort of prop that up is to deny that things happen or to sort of like make them less of a, a sort of anvil in the public consciousness, you know? Right. And for anybody listening along at home, CRT is shorthand for critical race theory, uh, which is not really what it's being advertised as in oppositional media. The folks who are against it are playing kind of fast and loose with the reality of that that kind of study. But what it's meant to be is just acknowledging reality. And, and it's just being now used right. as kind of a weapon to say, oh, no, 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 you're trying to shove all this, you know, left-wing ideology down the throats of our children mm-hmm. when what it really kind of means is let's just be a little more even-handed with our description of, of, of history. It's also college level. It's not right. I- anyway. That's that's the primary. <laughs> um, that's the primary cynical, misleading statement that I'm talking about. But to to your uh, you guys' excellent points about the idea of moving on or acknowledging the past, folks, wherever you live, whatever your corner or neck of the global woods may be, you'll see the individual mileage may vary on a. Uh, state actor level. Uh, when I've been in Belgium before, by the way, like not too far away from Germany, of course, there's not a lot of talk about the atrocities in the Congo. Uh, I've spent some time in Japan. There's, you know, super not a lot of talk about stuff that went down in mainland China in World War II or in Korea. And so we see that Again, when I say we are the stories we tell ourselves, I'm not just talking about the microcosmic individual level. I'm talking about the macrocosmic state level or nation level. And this is something that Mishima is tapping into. One of the strangest things that happens with the S.H.I.E.L.D. society is Mishima does this 180 that you teased so beautifully, Zach, in part one of our series he says, you know, I got to keep my, I got to, you know, like offspring, I got to keep them separated, right? My literary life and identity, my uh, nationalistic military stuff, at least when applied to the S.H.I.E.L.D. Society, I was interested to find that he did not think literary youth, who would have been just like him when he was younger, right? Very similar. He didn't think they were suited for the S.H.I.E.L.D. Society. So there's one exception, and it's him. I found that very interesting. Well, again, it's that that contradiction, that that insecurity, that tension between being a man of action and being a man of letters. There's a quote from his um, book, Kyoko's House, uh, which is featured prominently in the film Mishima Life in Four Chapters. This notion, there's an actor there who, who it's almost like a refrain in the story, you know, stage blood is no longer enough. Letters are no longer enough. Thought is no longer enough. You have to act. And these were things that he wrote very openly about, this kind of sense that um, what we do sort of like engaging in uh, philosophy, letters, even his contempt for what he termed ideology, which is, I'm sorry, sort of interchangeable with politics. You can't escape it. (laughs) Um, It it was always kind of in service of this thing where it's like, we can talk until the cows come home, but when things really come to a head, there has to be a man of action or a woman of action, a person of action, someone there to actually move the needle in some meaningful way. And he took took great pains near the end of his life to at least appear to be that person, surrounding himself with people that he deemed of that character. And 
his participation in debates within the academic circles of the time were strangely very fraught, but also, same time, begrudgingly respectful. Uh, the new left was arising during this period, as was the new right uh, in the wake of his work within his militia and things like that. And one of the things that each of them found was like this sort of simpatico kind of set of ideologies, this idea that Japan had been kind of set on a path by America specifically to sort of denounce mm. itself, to denounce its history, and to become sort of like a pet project, for lack of a better phrase. And he really resented that. And the new left also resented that a great deal. Uh, Anti-Americanism was a major component of both uh, the far right and the far left of the period. And Mishima seemed to be this sort of intermediary figure. Like um, in the last years of his life, he openly debated people at universities. And, you know, there's always like this sort of, uh, because this is a very violent time, there's students occupying Nihon University and University of Tokyo, 8,500,000 riot cops. There are struggle sessions within these new left movements that result in one to four people dying between the years of 1971-2003. Like, it's such a politically fraught time that we don't hear much about because our entire understanding of this place, and I think many places that we don't have a close relationship to, are just, unfortunately, as this kind of faraway exotic colony, wherein like there right. are all of these political affiliations, these political conflicts that are unfolding, people, union people being killed by occupation forces secretly. Like It's so fascinating to see how especially around 68, where all of the other labor and leftist movements are arising worldwide in protest of like the emerging new neoliberal order. You see all of these things happening, and it, it is happening everywhere. And to have that so diminished in our discussion of history is just fascinating to me. And dangerously convenient Absolutely. for some people. Yeah, and that's I, I think that's a danger. You know, we have to remember history is a conversation, right? And it's... Uh, Faulkner was right when he said the past isn't past, you know, mm -hmm. it affects us today. So let's dive into this period we're talking about. Let's say 1969 uh, through the 70s. We know that per your research, you cite a wonderful article in the Paris Review. Uh, we know that around 1969 is when Mishima starts seriously plotting to take his own life, starts really thinking about this. Uh, this is also the time he has a big show for the first anniversary of the S.H.I.E.L.D. Society. I thought there was a very neat, almost Capote-esque note to this. <laughs> yep. He invites a hundred guests, some from all over the world, many from Japan. And if you didn't make it, he never talks to you again. That's it. You have this, this uh, disrespect shall not stand. Uh, where, we, when we talk about him sort of planning the, to take his own life, becoming increasingly militaristic, and when he's, uh, he resigns from the symposium on culture and stuff, he's really doubling down on this more militaristic aspect how connected is the Japanese public with this? If, if you ballparked it, like if you're a person in Japan here in the late 1960s, early 70s, is there a common opinion about Mishima or is it more, again, just sort of you see what you want to see in a public figure? I mean, a lot of that comes down to, again, that cult of personality, that ostentatiousness. Mm. Uh, I mean, it, it he remains a kind of, not necessarily marginal culturally, but certainly somebody who's increasing kind of participation in these things is, is, is seen as kind of ridiculous, absurd. Um, mm. And um, 
one of the things that's important to remember, again, is that like the right wing did not like him. The left wing had a grudging respect for him, but found him to be, quote, an anachronistic gorilla. And um, <laughs> I'm serious. And um, wow. it was often met with threats of violence on both sides. And it, it seems to me like it's 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 so difficult to pin these things down because we don't know the man. We can't know the man. There seems to be something of like the death drive at the center of all of this stuff, which is a point that I think we can get to later on. I don't think he necessarily cared at the end of his life how he was received so much so that like, uh, or as much as he wanted to be seen at, not, if nothing else, as a man of action and all that entails. And you get to the point where he's doing these controversial things as an openly gay man who surrounds himself with, with college-age men and because of his status as a literary figure, those things were sort of controversial and met with like a very skeptical eye. Although it is plausible that he saw that as a modern continuation of samurai tradition. Absolutely. And that's sort of something we've lost in this discussion. And uh, there are themes in the book, in, in many of the books, where, you know, the sort of love between a, a, an older boy and a younger boy is, is, is kind of a recurring motif. And in fact, like... Um, one of the things that comes out of the conversation surrounding his death is how like common a phenomenon this was, even even in this sort of Taisho or not the or even in the post Meiji Restoration. Um, that's not something they would have embraced publicly. It was like the, absolutely not, you know, yeah. an open secret maybe, but definitely not, you know, uh, something that would be you know touted or like you know even like emphasized in historical accounts, right? Absolutely, yeah. No, that's spot on. So he does not become this this kind of like firebrand this very public figure in the way that he probably wants. And, you know, that's mm -hmm. indicative of the, the reception of the parade. It's indicative in the reception for his referendum for conscripting 10,000 civilians into the SDF. And it's also in the quizzical response given to this militia, um, which is truly like a very absurd thing for a writer of novels to be doing in any historical context, um, much less yeah. the 1960s and 70s. Right. It maybe makes more sense if you are a, uh, if, if you flip the evolution, right? If you are a military uh, individual of note and then later you write novels. That, for some reason, is a transition that I think uh, more people find understandable. Mm -hmm. uh, Zach, I, I, I want us to go to, I want us to go to November 25th, 1970. This is where Mishima gets heckled they they heckle the heck out of him uh and can this speech that he gives uh that is i think it's supposed to be 10 minutes it's not about literary uh literary matters it's not a um it's not a performance of poetry or a meditation on the nature of the soul he is at a balcony where he is giving a 10 minute uh, I think he means it as a persuasive argument about his political theories. And in terms of being uh, well-received on a scale of one to 10, this is like a negative two, negative three. So one of the things that, that we kind of have been uh, tiptoeing around here is that this was a, um, this was a hostage situation, an attempted coup d'etat. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. 
With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, temp to hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah. Um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool, I, yeah. I, I just remember, it was my dad's. I, I was a hand-me-down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car. And I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something, you know? I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac, Bonnevilles. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, <laughs> I said El Camino and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. But it, it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
On the morning of November 25th, 1970, he and several members of the Tatonekai, the, the Shield Society, um, what they end up doing is they storm, a, they they have a, an official meeting with the general there, uh, General Kanetoshi Mashida. There's, of course, no expectation that anything is going to uh, go wrong. This seems to be an utterly cordial event. And in fact, that morning, Mishima had dropped off the final pages of the final novel of The Sea of Fertility, The Decay of the Angel, that morning, which is in and of itself is this highly symbolic performative gesture. Oh, yeah. Um, he was then taken hostage by the members of the S.H.I.E.L.D. Society, General Mishida, that is. And then Mishima ascended the balcony and then gave this speech that basically was designed to incite all of the, the sort of servicemen in the garrison to um, denounce the occupation government, to denounce the charters that had uh, sort of conscripted the Japanese military to this kind of defense-exclusive uh, status, um, mm-hmm. the sort of re-elevation of the emperor to his status within society, because again, he didn't feel the emperor should have abdicated in the way that he did, felt that they should acknowledge war crimes, did not feel that the emperor should have walked away from his traditional place within Japanese society. And then, after finishing this address, which he intended to make for half an hour, within minutes, this group of young servicemen, uh, seven minutes, are just berating him with insults. Uh, Madman, idiot, um, Japan is at peace. Do, do you think he was, was he expecting that or, or was this uh, shocking to him to, to a degree? Or was he just sort of like a little bit losing it? This is up for contention and something that I think we'll get into at the end of the episode. I personally don't believe that anybody who's serious about a project like this mm. knows that this is doomed to fail. Right. Um, that taking six or so of your best chaps to the, to the military base with swords and um, thinking that you're going to overthrow the government seems like an absolutely hubristic kind of thing. Like total Almost performative. Errand. Absolutely performative. And so what ends up happening is that he's being jeered by all of these people. Boo. He then, yeah, it's, it's really intense um, and probably no doubt humiliating if he is capable of feeling humiliation on that level. We'll get to that stuff in a moment. Mm. But um, he, he immediately withdraws from the balcony and this is a trigger warning for violence, takes the the ceremonial cross-legged seat on the ground, jams a dagger into his abdomen, and then draws it across it. And then after that, the attendant that's selected for the final act of seppuku, which is kaishaku, which is the ritual beheading, which puts the committer out of their misery, this young man named Morita Masakatsu, uh, somebody uh, who has in the intervening years been speculated to have been Mishima's last lover, draws the katana, makes the swing, and then fails to cleanly behead him. So this is already itself a tragedy that is very quickly becoming farce in a way that I don't think even Mishima would have appreciated as morbid as his sort of sense of humor and sense of the world was. So what ended up happening was that uh, somebody else stepped in a practice kendo expert, not an expert, but a, a kendo practitioner. Why didn't they let him do it in the first place, man? It seems like that with a prerequisite would at least be that you've like trained with a sword to some degree. This kid seems to have just botched it. Well, that status of being Mishima's favorite probably has right. a lot to do with it. That makes sense. But um, he steps in, finishes the job, 
And then Morita himself commits seppuku on the grounds of having disgraced himself by not being able to commit the final act of the ritual. Jesus, that's meta seppuku right there. That's wild. So basically, what you have is this incredibly bloody, awful scene, something that is, in fact, ripped straight from the fiction of Mishima himself. This ritual suicide in the name of kind of restoring national character. The two heads of these men side by side on the carpet, just absolute carnage. And then, um, obviously, scandal. Just something that had never happened in modern Japanese public life. And mind you, up to this point, there had been political assassinations, sure. uh, especially within right-wing circles. There were a number of incidents where right-wingers would would come upon leftist authors or academics and just openly murder them in public. Um, at some point, there were like a, sort of a right-wing elements that were flying planes into buildings and things of that mm-hmm. nature. Like, again, this incredibly conflicted, fraught politically time. And it reaches this punctuation mark. The death of the most popular Japanese author in the world in the most curious and absurd of circumstances, this anachronistic act that can't help but resemble pageantry more than anything that would be like a a kind of expression of a real politic. And I think ultimately that's where we kind of end up going with all of this stuff is like the sort of open questions, the ambiguity, whether or not Mishima was absolutely serious about this plot working or whether or not this was all just a pretense for something else. Yeah, yeah. It's a good question, Zach, because also, you know, to the point about pageantry, the suicide is uh, planned, or at least he times it, it seems, to coincide with the opening of the Japanese diet, which is the Japanese legislature. He also has very specific wishes about uh, how his Buddhist name is rendered post-mortem. Uh, he needs to be dressed in his Shield Society uniform. He bluntly says, I die not as a literary man, but entirely as a military man. And when we when we get to these, these questions, and you phrase it so beautifully, man, the, the puzzling, ambiguous questions, I think this is uh, one of the most fascinating parts of the story for you and for me as well honestly do you think this is in in Mishima's mind which we can't totally read do you think he sees this as you say a punctuation mark do you think this is meant to impart some sort of lesson or statement to the people of Japan at large I think, and again, this is all just speculation and interpretation, which is about as valuable as um, probably a pocket full of lint in many cases. <laughs> but um, the the thing about this is is that I've already brought up this sort of doom to failedness of this enterprise, right. the kind of absurd um, hubris that goes into cr- committing or, or attempting to commit coup d'état with a group of like several student aged men, armed exclusively with bladed weapons. To me. I think what this is trying to impart, which is something that even in his sort of like the notes that he left to his wife surrounding this plot, which is very strongly suggested this was the plan. So he told his wife, and this is a quote, even if I'm not immediately understood, it's okay because I'll be understood by the Japan of 50 or 100 years time, Mm. which is such a tragic kind of um, thing to say because I don't think that's the case at all. It's not going to happen, man. (laughs) It's not going to happen. The ambiguity of the thing, the sort of performative absurdity of the thing, it it kind of precludes any real interpretation of understanding of of what all of this actually was. And the thing that the film seems to try to sort of 
impart on all of this. So the film uh, Mishima and Life of Four Chapters and, you know, the, the photographs that he had taken of himself in the throes of many different suicides in the final days of his life. Photographs that he himself uh, meticulously composed but had shot by somebody else. His, his sort of ideas about James Dean and like sort of <laughs> dying beautifully at a young age. Like, it very much seems that Mishima could not be a man of action and understood this inherently. Hmm. His body at that point was already in decline. He he was conscripted into the military during the war in the final years of it. He did not make it into service. And the the film Mishima and Life of Four Chapters uh, implies that he, in fact, played up his, his, uh, his asthma symptoms so as to avoid service. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the thing is, too, that that's where all of this bodybuilding comes from, this trying to sort of like make himself this like stone-cut figure, this man of action. There's another lovely scene in the film where he's at a dance hall where young men are dancing with one another, and he has a partner. And the partner places his hand on his shoulders. And mind you, this is Mishima in top physical form. Uh, and says, your shoulders are kind of flabby. <laughs> and Mishima is absolutely inconsolable about this and just like leaves without saying anything and like in tears, like invisible tears, leaves the dance hall. And then later in the night goes to a payphone outside of this young man's apartment and calls him and essentially says, you're young and beautiful and I am old and dying. So please be tender in the future with anybody you meet. And it's this incredibly lovely scene that I think also gives away a lot of this guy's personality and sort of the anxieties surrounding the simple fact that, you know, his literary career, while still fruitful, was sort of on the wane. He wasn't taken seriously as an actor. Um, he wasn't taken seriously as a political ideologue. Somebody whose influence and body were declining, at least to him, at a rate that was just, he couldn't abide it. Well, it's a hard thing to wrap your head around in general. I mean, uh, you know, just the idea of, you know, being replaced or, you know, getting older and, and feeling, you know, if you're ba if you're someone who seeks fame in the way that this guy obviously did to kind of base your whole personality around, you know, this character you've created yourself and no longer does it kind of fly anymore. And then who are you at that point? Especially since, you know, he was kind of considered soft and weak in the whole grandmother situation. And now he styled himself as this like macho kind of, you know, warrior kind of figure. And then that's starting to wane too. So it really does seem like he was kind of on this doomsday course the whole time. Zach, you mentioned from the start that even in his writing, he sort of fancied himself this sort of tragic martyr type figure. Absolutely. Uh, again, that notion of stage blood not being enough, that, noted, that notion of, of that tension between action and, and inaction, um, the life of the mind versus the body. And quite frankly, and um, this is sort of like the point that I've been kind of gesturing towards throughout the whole thing. Yeah. This is a type of neurosis that reactionary nostalgia tends to engender. Mm -hmm. the, crisis of, uh, the crisis of masculinity in modern times, for instance, right? The men's rights stuff, uh, you know, these figures that style themselves as like these sort of, uh, these, you know, these men, right? Uh, these moral compasses. Exactly. And, you know, obviously, like here, it's a, the inflection point is like Western philosophy, antiquity, et cetera. There are so many similarities between that and Mishima's attitude surrounding the aesthetics and the sort of ethics of Japan and how those two are tied. And I think one of the things that these people usually run into and I think should run into is that aesthetics can be politically inflected. It is not politics. Right. Culture will generally tend conservative regardless. 
um, because that's the nature of consensus, for better or worse. And what we end up with is a situation where you have a group of dispossessed people who, rather than locating where their dispossession comes from, they reach back into a past that, in many cases, they did not even live, right. they have no relationship to, in aesthetics and philosophy, political systems, and they think, well, that was obviously something that is upheld as brilliant, <laughs> something that is upheld as good and just. You know, like we can talk as much about the ancient Greeks as we want, but the the number of things that we would find morally pernicious about those systems really do leave a bad taste in the mouth if you take any of this stuff seriously beyond the aesthetic component. And Mishima seems to me was a philosophically inclined person. If you read his writings, yeah. he's not a slouch in this regard. He may have had open contempt for the life of the mind and intellectuals and things of that nature, but that's because he was one of them. Yeah. And that double standard that he imposed on himself, like I said, it cleaves you in half and you don't really have much of a place to go. Yeah. Because you, and I think that's, I think that's tremendously astute, Zach. And when we look at Mishima's legacy today, you know, um, I actually, first learned of Mishima not in college, but uh, on my first trip to Nagoya because some, some writer friends there wanted to talk about Mishima with me. And it after you hear this story, folks, if you've never heard of this author, it may sound surprising that this person is still so uh, highly lauded in the literary world and so widely read in Japan and abroad. But he really is that talented you can be a talented person and still have torturous things in, in your psychology, in your being, with which you wrestle throughout your life. Um, I feel that it is incredibly important anytime we discuss a topic that touches on uh, the nature of self-harm, it is incredibly important for us to say that if you or a loved one are dealing with uh, challenging issues, do not hesitate to reach out. There are tons of worthwhile free resources available to you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Here in the U.S., uh, you can reach out to self-harm suicide crisis lifelines. Uh, there is the old 10-digit one, 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. And... Uh, thank goodness, as of this summer, you can also simply dial 988. Uh, speak with someone. Your health and well-being is more than worth it. And that's just, that's our disclaimer we want to bookend this series with. But uh, honestly, you know, this makes you want to go back and reread more Mishima, Zach. I don't know about the everybody else. Also, the, the friend, the, the mutual friend of ours, uh, Zach, and, and Ben, you, you've met him as well. Peyton Fisher, a friend of the podcast, loaned me this DVD when we were in high school together, and I totally slept on it. I never watched it, and I returned it to him, and uh, I, I copped to that recently, and he was just kind of uh, aghast, so I really do need to get this film, which is, by the way, directed by Paul Schrader, who wrote uh, Taxi Driver, was a very important um, collaborator with uh, Francis Ford Coppola as well, um, scored by the incredible Philip Glass. Uh, I believe George Lucas and Coppola had uh, or was it Scorsese had uh, production credits in this? Film? I think all three had production credits. There was a there was a concerted effort on both Lucas and Coppola specifically as well throughout the eighties to bring Japanese or Japanese sort of themed films to the United States. Kagemusha was executive produced by Lucas and Coppola as well. Mm. And with this, I believe we we have to say thank you again 
Dr. Zach? One night over Sleepy Town, a doctor appeared. But this was no normal doctor. Who's there? It's Zach. Zach who? The doctor. Name's Zach. And he's here to fill your scripts. Adjust for knowledge. Pet his cat. Teach you history. Books and stuff. Um, let's go with other things. Yeah, that'll work. We're trying that nickname on. We're going to take it around the street, take it, drive it down the block and see how it feels. Thank you again so much. And um, as we said in part one, I think you mentioned this, Noel, uh, we're very excited to have you on the team. Uh, you bring such a fresh perspective. Uh, love the stories that you are finding and hope you had a good time. Uh, we pulled you in for your first, we pulled you into deep water. For your first on-air appearance, uh, Doc Zach, are are you uh, how are you feeling about coming back on in the future? No, absolutely, P- probably for some lighter subject matter, I hope. But uh, <laughs> yeah, this one's no. a doozy for sure. But I mean, it really is like it's hard to just explain why this guy was so important in just a couple of sentences, which I think maybe why I did sleep on that film because I couldn't easily wrap my head around it, and I think my younger self was maybe a little, a uh, little less willing to take the plunge, you know. But it really is, you know, you've got so much stuff out there. Uh, this guy's work uh, is available, uh, the film that we're talking about, but just what a guy that kind of controlled the narrative of his life in such an interesting way because I am still kind of of the mind that this ending was orchestrated you know to a Mm. degree like he walked in there knowing full well what was going to happen and to his credit you know it's still the object of speculation Uh, we're still reading him we're still watching Schrader's film which I can't stress enough is is gorgeous both formally narratively thematically Um, in my mind Schrader's best film um Certainly worth a watch on the Criterion channel if you have that. Um, and read the sound or read the sound of the waves if you want something a bit more traditional and less queasy. <laughs> but if you really want to dive deep with Mishima, I su- highly suggest the Temple of the Golden Pavilion, which is one of the most stark uh, depictions of uh, mental disturbance, um, neurosis, and sort of spiritual awakening that I have ever read. Well-written books are not always happy books, folks. Uh, so let the let the reader uh, be aware. Uh, but do do also check out Mishima's work if you haven't yet. In the meantime, we'd also love to hear from you, fellow ridiculous historians. Who are some other authors that you feel have a, a, a body of you know canonical literature as well as a personal life outside of literature that? many people may not be aware of. We'd love to hear your suggestions. You can find us on Facebook where we're uh, Ridiculous Historians. We're still working on the vision board from our very first episodes. I don't think we got the password to the MySpace yet. No, 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 no. It's okay. It's okay. We, we're working on it. We'll get right back to you on that. Huge thanks to Zach Williams, of course. Alex Williams. Uh, Max Williams. All the William, the Williamses. The Williams. Ooh, Williams three, Rich. So we yeah. call them. Yeah. Yeah, we sure are. <laughs> um, uh, thanks, Chris Frostiotis here in Spirit. Eve's Jeff Coat, Jonathan Strickland. All the hits. Thanks to you, Ben. This was a great, uh, great conversation. Thanks to you, Noel. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.